0: Over the past several decades, the way we consume weather information and receive our latest forecasts have been revolutionized. Millions of people can tune in to watch the weather channel, an impending tornado outbreak or approaching hurricane. All this information so readily at our fingertips is it easy to forget how far we've come in our knowledge of weather and how it can shape our future. Today's guest hasn't forgotten the past at all. In fact, he loves to write about it. We're excited to welcome best selling author. Eric J. Dolan, who has authored 14 books and more than 60 articles. Today, we'll discuss his latest book, A Furious Sky, the 500-year history of America's hurricanes, and we'll learn what his inspiration has been for many of his acclaimed works. Thank you for joining us, Eric, on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, this is Weather Geeks, and so there's a standard question I always ask every guest, and I don't know that you have an answer, but I have to imagine you are at least somewhat of a weather geek since you write about weather sometimes. So how do you sort of find your affinity or get into weather?
1: Well, I don't think I can ascend to the geek status. I've always watched the weather avidly, and I love being out in the weather, but uh, this book got its start because... I've been fascinated by hurricanes. I didn't know a lot about them. And I thought about writing a book about a hurricane for a number of years. But part of the problem was the two hurricanes that were the most likely candidates, the Galveston hurricane of 1900 and the great hurricane of 1938, already had a bunch of really good books written about them. So I didn't want to just add to the list of books that were already out there. So I put aside my hurricane idea and i wrote a book on lighthouses and then on pirates and then finally after the hurricane season of 2017 which uh, as all you listeners and you certainly know was like the hurricane season from hell uh, with uh, maria harvey and irma uh, right after that my publisher got in contact with my agent and they thought that the time was right for a book of the history of america's hurricanes and they knew that I had written a lot of books that span centuries and pulled together a lot of information. So they asked me if I was interested in writing that book and they they landed on prime uh, territory because I was very interested, but it took about a month and a half before I said yes. What I did is I went off and I read a bunch of classic books about hurricanes and weather, and I tried to envision what this book would look like if I wrote it. And once I got to the point that I was confident that I could actually write uh, an exciting and interesting narrative story of five hundred years of hurricanes. That's when the book came into being and then I spent nearly two years working on it. So so now now maybe I'm officially a weather geek right now. Yes. But certainly
0: not when I started. <laughs> Well, on behalf of all weather geeks in this podcast, we are now officially (laughs) donning you a weather geek. But no, in all seriousness, though, um, yeah, I think weather is one of those things and hurricanes particularly that is fascinating. We're going to dive all into your book. Let me give a little bit about your background so that the listeners just know who we're talking about. Uh, Eric actually has a BS in biology and a BS in environmental studies from Brown University, a master's in environmental management from Yale and a PhD in environmental policy and planning from MIT. His dissertation focused on the role of the courts in the cleanup of Boston Harbor. So <laughs> uh, I mentioned in the intro that you've written over 14 books. Um, before we really dive into um, you know, the, the book about hurricanes, just tell us about some of the, you mentioned books about lighthouses. What are some of the other things that you've written? uh well as,
1: highlights. yeah no I, I wrote a book on the history of whaling in america that's uh was back in 2007 called the viathan i wrote a book on uh, the china trade when america first met china and the china trade between the american revolution and the civil war i wrote the book on lighthouses called brilliant beacons which is like a four-century history of lighthouses wow. i wrote a book called fur fortune and empire which is a uh, Dramatic history of the fur trade in America and how it helped to create
0: our nation up through the early 1900s. Well, I mean, I'm trying the most re- What's that? I'm trying to find the thread to the things that you write, but I'm having difficulty <laughs> there. I mean, are there any common threads, or do you just kind of write what you're interested in, or? What? Yeah, I write what I'm interested in, but there is
1: one sort of thread. Even though the fur trade book sounds like it's solely terrestrial, it had a big section on uh, the sea otter trade with China. And that's how actually I got interested in the idea of writing a book on the China trade. My pirate book is also about maritime issues. So I would say if you had to pick one thread is I like large scale uh, phenomenon that have some connection to the ocean. I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which, as you may know, is about 20 miles north of Boston. It's right on the coast. I live about a quarter of a mile from the ocean. I've always loved the ocean. When I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and be Jacques Cousteau. Uh, that didn't pan out, but, but I had a fascination for uh, anything relating to wildlife and, and the ocean. I was a big seashell collector. I spent a lot of time walking along the beach. So if there was one thing that I would connect almost all my books, they have some kind of environmental or wildlife theme, but also they have some either explicit or sort of implied or tangential connection to the ocean. My next book is on privateering during the American Revolution, which of course is attacking British commerce on the ocean. So there'll be a lot about ships and, and, and the ocean, but that doesn't mean that in the future I, I write a book that is solely terrestrial or something that, that's different, but I, I do love the ocean.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's certainly, uh, that thread certainly is woven into your work on hurricanes, which we know that the oceans are the fuel supply for hurricanes. Now it's interesting because You aren't just a writer. As I look at some of my notes here from the production team, uh, you've spent time as a program, the Environmental Protection Agency of Fisheries Policy Analysts with the National Marine Fisheries. Uh, uh, You did some (laughs) writing with the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, even worked as an intern at the National Wildlife Federation. So, uh, in these roles, I, I wonder if they have given you inspiration and fodder, or perhaps even data for your books.
1: Uh, yeah, in, indirectly. I mean, if you look at my resume, you think that I can't keep a job, which may be, may be true. I've only been <laughs> fired from one job. It was when I was a clerk in a supermarket when I was a teenager, but I do tend to, uh, I jump around a lot when I was working. I haven't jumped around since becoming a full-time writer in 2007, because this is what I love most to do. But all of those uh, jobs had the environmental streak. Some of them dealt with uh, uh, ocean issues. I worked as an intern in the Coastal Zone Management Office in Massachusetts, where I met my uh, soon-to-be wife. And I worked on dredged materials management. And I also worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration On fisheries management so again there's that connection between the environment and and the ocean that I think runs through my experience but also my interest in writing because while I had all those jobs I was always either writing on the side or writing for work and I suddenly not suddenly but in late 1990s I realized that writing is what I'd like to do so I started I mapped out a plan maybe it's too. too much to call it a plan, but I I told my wife I wanted to be a full-time writer, and she said, that's fine. Uh, You have to earn some money at it first, and (laughs) she basically said I had to put aside a year's worth of my salary before I could consider quitting my job, and I worked for many years. I wrote a number of books. Some did quite well, and eventually, in the summer of 2007, my wife said that I could quit my job and i couldn't have done it without her support and the support of my family and i i did i left my job in 2007 and i've been writing books ever since it's the hardest job i've ever had but it's a, it's a lot of fun i get to meet interesting people and uh because i write on different topics even though they might have a central through theme i see these different little subcultures and i have to say that i was fascinated to learn about the whole weather subculture you call them and geeks uh, uh, you know, um, Brian Norcross, I think called them weather weenies at one point when I was talking to him. And yeah, I know it's Brian. an amazing group of people who are just so into uh, the science and the history and everything related to these weather and meteorological phenomenon. And then I got to get a peek behind the scenes because I was reading so much about what professional meteorologists like you have done over the the centuries and it was just fascinating but i I had the same experience when i wrote a book on fur trade i learned about all these uh rendezvous and mountain men reenactors and these people (laughs) that are into that and the china trade was a whole subculture and lighthouses oh boy lighthouses there are people that have lighthouse passports that go around the country and they visit lighthouses sometimes as many as five or six hundred and i met this whole subculture of people who are just fascinated by lighthouses so uh it, it it's been really it's been really neat and i and I want to say something this is i'm not just saying this because you're a meteorologist uh, I have so much more respect I had respect before for meteorologists and my main connection was through weather forecasters on TV, which do a great job of giving us the weather. But if you just look at that, you can get a jaded perspective and think, oh, they're just reading from a script. They say the same thing over and over again. But after writing and researching this book and talking to meteorologists, some of them, uh, I, I just got this newfound appreciation, one, for how complex meteorology really is, especially hurricanes, trying to model them, those computer models and trying to make projections. But added to that is the incredible intensity of that part of the job, because your predictions are going to affect the movements of perhaps millions of people. And uh, that's a lot of pressure because if you get it wrong, you're vilified. Uh, when you get it right, nine out of 10 times, people say don't really say anything. They just sort of, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. But it's just amazing to me the amount of work that goes into it and, uh, and the professional uh, nature of it and also the complexity of it. I, I took physics in, in high school. Uh, I didn't do too well. Uh, so, yeah, so.
0: Look, I, I've had many a conversation with students that walked into my office at the University of Georgia wanting to major in meteorology until they saw that all the physics and calculus and <laughs> right. fluid dynamics and thermodynamics involved. But yeah, that's a really interesting point you make because I'm the as a, as a former president of the American Meteorological Society, one of the things that I immediately learned is only about six to eight percent of meteorologists or even TV meteorologists, but that's what most of the public is familiar with. In right. fact, my own career. Of meteorology, I have not even made a, ever made a forecast. i, I worked <laughs> for NASA, developing weather climate satellites and so forth so uh, it, it, it is a much interesting feel and i 'm glad you had a chance to sort of really dip your toe into them I and we, we use the term we embrace it because we know that you know it 's one of those terms that in a certain narrative, geek or weenie could have a negative connotation, but we <laughs> try to when we developed the TV show for Weather geeks and now the podcast. Uh, we wanted to embrace the term because there's some really right. passionate and, and smart people out there in this field. And I know some of them are listening right now and are saying Marshall tri- pivot to his discussion of the hurricane book. So that's what I going to do right after we come back from, from this break. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're talking with Eric Dolan about The History of Hurricanes, and he has a fascinating new book called The Furious Sky, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes, and I know that the Weather Geeks listeners are saying, let's get into that conversation, so let's do it, but first, um, you have an interesting take or perspective on the origin of the word hurricane, is that right?
1: Yeah, that was one of the fascinating things to learn about. As uh, your listeners no doubt know, uh, uh, Christopher Columbus was the first European to uh, make it to the quote-unquote new world, which of course wasn't discovered. Had, people have been populating it for millennia. But uh, one thing that uh, Christopher Columbus knew nothing about was hurricanes. And during his four voyages to the new world, not only did he often treat Uh, local natives quite horrifically, but he also talked to them and was able to communicate to some extent. And one of the things that he learned about was these massive storms. And they told him about the signs that could be used to sort of anticipate the coming of a hurricane, including uh, a red red sky uh, in the the morning and uh, high cirrus clouds, perhaps, and long, deep swells. And although we don't have record of it, I'm sure they also were able to tell them how some of the animals, uh, both in the water and on land, maybe acted a little differently with the approach of a low pressure system. Uh, So Christopher Columbus became aware of hurricanes and he also heard how they referred to hurricanes because the different cultures in uh, the Caribbean and uh, Central America and South America had different names for the, uh, the god of weather Often vindictive, appeared God of Weather. The Mayan culture called these storms Hunraken, or called the God of Weather Hunraken. The taino Indians called it Hurricane. Uh, I'm not sure I'm getting the pronunciation exactly correct, but all of these different variations on Hunraken, Hurakan, Hurricane, uh, those were adopted by the Europeans, starting with Christopher Columbus. And they started to call it uh, hurricane and that word hurricane got translated into other uh, European languages and it often sounds uh, similar in different languages, but that's how we came up with the word hurricane and of course, uh, of course, there's also a fascinating story about the evolution of different names in different parts of the world is A lot of people are not aware who read my book. They say, oh, I didn't know that hurricanes are exactly like typhoons or cyclones. They're just different names for similar uh, phenomenon. But one of the strangest names that I came across, and I'm not sure how much Australians use it today, but Australians uh, apparently used to uh, refer to hurricanes or cyclones as willy willies or cockeyed bobs. So hurricane has you know very well is what we call these meteorological phenomena in the Atlantic and the eastern uh, pacific so that's sort of a brief history it's much more extensive in the book of the, the where the word hurricane came from
0: yeah and it's uh, interesting yeah I, I was familiar with the term willy willy there's been some controversy cuz i actually wrote something about that in the past and someone from from Australia was like, well, we don't call them that. But I, I'm, I'm glad you clarified it. it's something that they used to call it because, you know, I, I remember on Twitter being accosted, if you will, by someone that said, well, we don't call them that anymore. But certainly early in the history, you know, before we, I, I think about the Galveston storm, uh, you know, and, and, and there's a book that I don't know if you're familiar with, called Isaac storm, I imagine. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Uh, that, that talks about sort of, you know, these storms and Galveston storm uh, early in the last century. And, you know, we didn't have these nice models and satellites to warn, but I can imagine it was even worse well beyond that. You know, when we talk about some of the earlier settlers and explorers and how they had to deal with these storms, I imagine you get into that. And I know that you do from kind of taking a peek into sort of some of the early challenges that, people dealt with in the sort of pre-technology era. Talk talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, certainly in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, even up through the early 1800s, hurricanes were often viewed as acts of God. It was not until the late 1700s, 1800s that people started to view them more as natural events. But the real problem was they didn't have any ability to uh, uh, sort of, forecast their approach other than the things that uh, Christopher Columbus made use of, and uh, they weren't very good at it. So the great colonial hurricane of 1635, which slammed into uh, the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1635, uh, basically came out of nowhere as far as the people on land were concerned and many people who were on ships at sea and uh, people didn't have an opportunity to uh, run and escape and many people died and it had a major impact on early colonial life. And you see that time and time again with with these hurricanes for which we have surprisingly good records, even going back to the 1600s and late 1500s that uh, these massive storms could just upend a local community's life literally overnight And they had very little warning that it was coming. But even into the 1900s, there are hurricanes that shift uh, course very rapidly. And even when we had some uh, early detection, like in the 1935 Labor Day hurricane, when the Weather Bureau was up and operating and had very uh, well-trained meteorologists and had some limited ability to track hurricanes as they moved uh, across the Atlantic and, and towards the North American coast, Uh, That hurricane was, uh, what happened towards the end of that is there was a rapid intensification period and a shift in direction. So it wasn't until the very last minute, almost literally, that the Weather Bureau finally got the track right. And by that time, uh, relief operations and evacuation efforts had already failed. And uh, about 450 people died, including many World War I veterans but even today i mean one of the things that i get asked a lot when i give talks on this book is why can't we know exactly where a hurricane is going well in advance uh, and that's because these are incredibly complex meteorological phenomena. the computer models that we use or that people like you use to try to forecast where a hurricane's going have uh, you know in- incredibly complex calculations millions of iterations and when dealing with the natural environment and your ability to map what's actually happening out there in real time, uh, you're inevitably not going to be hundred percent correct until the exact onset of the hurricane, the, the eye moving over uh, the coastline. So even today, I think one of the things that frustrates people is with all this high tech gadgetry that we have, and maybe gadgetry, is a, that's the wrong term, you know, satellites, computer models, historical records, uh, ships at sea, buoys, all sorts of stuff. Still, there's some element of mystery when it comes to forecasting a hurricane, and they still are able to uh, provide surprises, and often very unpleasant surprises, for those communities that suddenly find themselves in the crosshairs. And I have to add, pleasant surprises for those communities who days out were Uh, Being targeted by the forecast and basically they were the ones that were going to get creamed and then the uh, forecast changes the hurricane moves 50 miles or 100 miles to the west or east and suddenly they're out of The danger zone. So and I think that's part of the reason why people get so fascinated by hurricane coverage because it's it's dramatic real-life TV (laughs) You can't imagine more drama that that it comes from a hurricane slamming into the coast. And uh, people are riveted on that kind of coverage.
0: And it's interesting. Yeah, we hurricanes are really challenging. I will I will say that in recent decades, our, our track forecasting has far exceeded our intensity forecasting and skill. Right. Um. There's, as you noted, there will always and will always be error. That's why we issue a cone of uncertainty rather than a line when we give those forecasts. Right. Um, but as you noted, people still sort of want I think and it's a challenge that many of our social sciences colleagues have kind of gotten into this world now because I think people still envision these hurricanes as lines or dots on the map as opposed to large broad areas Um, I I think we've made progress in track but not intensity but the the answer to the question that I often give that you often receive is why why can't we give exact answers to where these hurricanes is going is that imagine putting a pinwheel into the Mississippi river and it's spinning along as it's moving in a fluid itself uh, Mm -hmm. and trying to sort of pinpoint exactly downstream four days where that, where that storm will be. So the lesson there is to always watch the evolving forecast. Don't watch the forecast five days ago and say, well, they said it was going to go this way because it it is constantly changing. you You, you, you mentioned sort of more recent storms. Uh, and I know that you talk about Maria in your book and the devastation in Puerto Rico. Um, what are some lessons uh, from past hurricanes or even perhaps more recent ones that you feel should be brought out to the broader society that you write about in your book? Are there sort of these prevailing lessons that emerge?
1: Yeah, at the end of the book, I talk about the fact that it's really a history book, and I didn't want to give prescriptive policy advice, although I talk about a number of things that could be done, and I, I certainly have Opinions on that one thing that relates directly to your listeners and you is that uh, people ought to pay more attention to meteorologists and uh, Not get upset with them when they get something slightly wrong and realize that this is an amazing public service that the National Hurricane Center and National Weather Service and all the other meteorologists are providing for us and and this should extend to politicians one of the problems with hurricanes is if you have one that's going to slam into the coast local politicians uh, regional politicians will often make decisions about evacuations and that's all well and good if the hurricane strikes where they expected it to strike and the the evacuation results in saving uh, many people's lives but there have been instances where evacuations have been called which are very expensive and then the hurricane has drifted to a different area and a lot of people get upset that they were evacuated and all that cost was incurred and i would encourage Uh, people to be more lenient when it comes to reacting to hurricane warnings and watches and what they're being told to do by public officials who only have their best interest uh, at heart. Another thing that I think really needs to be thought about by society, especially in a warming world, is the uh, you know, with the the melting of the glaciers and the thermal expansion of the ocean, the ocean is rising, it's getting higher. So storm surges from any hurricane are gonna be more damaging necessarily than they would have been in the past if the uh, ocean was at a lower level. But people need to think long and hard about where they're building, how they're building. We We continue to have this rush to the coast. And perhaps I'm guilty of that, I live in Marblehead, but I don't live right on the ocean. I'm a quarter of a mile away from the beach, and even my little town has done simulations recently about how global warming and a potential hurricane strike might affect things, and the story is not pretty. So I would hope that regional planners and the, the federal government pay more attention to uh, demographic shifts and also development patterns in uh, areas along the coast and one area we should particularly be careful about is uh, salt marshes and other coastal wetlands because one of the problems that places like new orleans is faced and uh, along the gulf coast is there has been a massive uh, decrease in the amount of coastal wetlands largely due to human development and coastal wetlands are excellent natural shock absorbers for storm surges and hurricane impacts. So by destroying those wetlands, we are increasing the risk that uh, local towns and communities face from these hurricanes, which are not going to stop coming ashore. So we can be a lot smarter about how we plan for the future and also perhaps take uh, steps that uh, protect us or shield us from future hurricane strikes. Unfortunately, we have a poor track record with that in some areas. Look at what happened with Hurricane Katrina and the levee system and wall system that had been built to withstand a Category 3 hurricane, but clearly it couldn't stand up to the Category 3 Hurricane Katrina. And uh, even more recently, uh, there have been problems with the multi 10, 20, 30 billion dollar investment down there to shore up the levees and put in new pumps. Even that is slowly subsiding into the sediment, causing a whole round of new problems that the people in New Orleans are gonna to have to deal with if they wanna protect their, uh, their lives and their, their community. So I think there are plenty of things we can do, but you have to add, this is only one of many social concerns, political concerns, and we have limited time, limited amount of money, so whether society invests the amount of money and time necessary to deal better with hurricanes than we had in the past is an open question. But I think there are plenty of things we can do.
0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Eric Dolan about the history of hurricanes in his new book about the history of a furious sky, the 500 year history of America's hurricanes. You, I want to pivot the discussion now to something that you talk about in the book. You, you discussed Dan Rather's 1961 coverage of a hurricane and how it altered the future of broadcasting. Now, I see the criticism out there at times of how. Uh, entities and journalists cover hurricanes today and they immerse themselves in the storm and there's 24 seven coverage. And There are critics out there that say that's hyping the weather. That's just ratings driven and so forth. But, I think there's a story in between about, sort of as you alluded to, the fascination with and the sort of drama that unfolds, and also the real information and warning that is provided by that coverage. Talk to us about why why you feel that coverage by Dan Rather fundamentally altered the way we cover these storms and broadcasting in general.
1: Well, that was Hurricane Carla that slammed into the Texas coast in 1960, uh, was it 60 or 61? I didn't look, now I can't remember, but anyway. (laughs) It's in the book. And uh, the thing is, sixty-one. That, yeah, 61, that's right at the edge of when we started to, uh, you know, we had radar in place then. We were just starting with the satellite re- revolution, but it hadn't taken off. But uh, Dan Rather went down to Galveston. He was a local uh, TV reporter uh, further north. And he went down to Galveston to be there when the hurricane came ashore. And he was in the local weather uh, bureau station. And he noticed that they had this radar that gave you intermittent images of what this swirling behemoth of a storm looked like. And he came up with the idea of, can we show that on TV? It's always good to have visuals on TV. And the local uh, weather bureau guy uh, called headquarters and apparently got the okay because they not only showed this radar loop, but they also superimposed a map of the Gulf Coast and suddenly people realized that this hurricane was massive, covering much of the Gulf Coast, the, Gulf Coast, the Texas region. And uh, it was a really impressive sort of visual cue that they believe, the people that were involved at the time, and I'm sure it did, it impressed upon the viewers the seriousness of the situation. and probably helped encourage many people to decide to evacuate Whereas if they hadn't seen how massive this storm was, they might have stayed in place. So that was sort of the beginning of the era when TV really started to take off in their weather coverage. Uh, it had started in the 50s with the golden age of television, but it was really as satellite loops started to come in. Uh, we And we had the ability to for people to go with cameras and uh, report live about hurricanes that we in a sense have been overwhelmed by coverage. And I wanna point out, I can't tell you the exact line that is the line we should draw, but there is a fine line, or maybe not such a fine line, between just accurate, straightforward reporting and hype that helps with ratings. And I have absolutely no doubt that many TV stations have stepped over that line willingly uh, because in the end, uh, TV weather and TV stations are money-making operations. And if there are stories that people gets people uh, glued to the TV set, those are the ones that they'll often go with. However, I will add that based on my personal experience and the experience of other people, many TV weather forecasts are very professional, very uh, restrained and accurate. And uh, if the hurricane is really big, scary and ominous and it's causing massive devastation, just reporting on it can seem like hype when in fact, it's just a reflection of reality. But I think it's something that meteorologists and uh, people at the National Weather Service need to have in the back of their mind. You don't wanna scare people unnecessarily, Uh, but uh, deciding, and I'm sure there are courses they learn, uh, weather forecasters and others, they maybe take courses or they discuss amongst one another how they can report on these hurricanes, both to get people to take the action that is necessary, Give them the information they need to make decisions, but not totally freak them out and cause a panic.
0: Yeah, I think this is right. And I I think there is a fine line and I I think there is value in sort of in in storm reporting. I mean, you see journalists in war zones and in landslide zones and so forth. I (laughs) I think that's the nature of of press and sort of immersive coverage. Um, I, I have been concerned at times when I've seen really inexperienced reporters and perhaps people that don't understand the storm and meteorologists that are out there in the midst of the storm. Uh, and, and perhaps even and some that are, are more experienced because I think there's an element of danger, but I think the people that know what they're doing and know what to look for, know what lines not to cross as right. you mentioned, know, um, You know, where, where can people, because this, I, I know that there are going to be listeners here that want to get their hands on your book immediately. Um, do you have any websites or social media where people can go to find your book or where, where they can buy it in stores and follow oh, you yeah. on social media?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you can find it in any bookstore online or a brick and mortar bookstore. If they don't have it on the shelf, they can certainly uh, order it. So any online bookseller like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or your local independent bookstore should be able to get you a copy. Also, if people are interested uh, for a present getting an autographed copy by me, just go to my website, which is E R I C dot com, and there there's a page that says signed copies where you can go to find out about getting a signed copy but i also would point people to my website because you can learn a lot about my other books but also i've posted the entire introduction to a furious sky so you can read it and decide whether you think it sounds interesting enough to take the next step and uh, get the Get the book. I also have a book trailer there that I put together. So, getting the book is not a problem. Uh, One other thing I will add is I have a professional Facebook page as opposed to my personal Facebook page where I post a lot about my books in general, history and nature. But also, I have had quite a few posts lately uh, about the hurricane book where I'll post excerpts. I've got one coming up on the development of. uh, telegraphy and uh, how that affected hurricanes. So anyway, there's no impediment to getting a copy of the book, and I hope some people do.
0: <laughs> Final question, and I, you alluded to this earlier in the podcast, but what are your forthcoming projects?
1: Well, my next uh, uh, book that I'm working on right now, I'm just getting the point of starting to write it, is on privateering during the American Revolution. That's basically when uh, American merchant ships got armed, got permission from the Continental Congress and state uh, colony governments to go out and attack British commerce to uh, both bring goods into the colonies and also harass the great British lion and make it more likely that they were going to decide this war was too much trouble to continue. And uh, privateering was a very widespread phenomenon, had a number of very interesting impacts a lot of dramatic stories about battles at sea and also within a larger tableau of the American revolution. So that's the book I'm working on now. Uh, what comes after that? I don't know. Maybe another weather topic. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, given this discussion, I, I would be looking forward to it. And so I, I encourage everyone to go out there and check this book out. It sounds fascinating. Um, before we get out of here, it is now time for our geek of the week, We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Chris Reese. Chris is a broadcast meteorologist for WISC-TV in Madison, Wisconsin. One of his favorite things about living in Madison is that it's not as hot and humid as the South. I live in the South, so I know about that. I think many people would agree with him, too. Uh, The biggest news story he's ever covered was the total solar eclipse in 2017, but as far as Madison, he's secretly waiting for that great blizzard one day. Chris strives to help make the world a better place, and he has overcome many obstacles and naysayers to get where he is today. Keep shining your light, Chris, and continue to share your passion for weather every day. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks.